seated. Well, we're going to continue the series that we've been in, uh, in the book of Ephesians. And, and if you would, turn in your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 13. Ephesians 4, 1 through 13 here today. Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things." And he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a pastor who's been uh, regularly involved in church ministry um, for, for quite a while now, and I'm sure a lot of you who, who have been in church ministry for a long time and have been very active in the church and share your faith in the community, you will run across one of the main excuses for not attending church. And it is, you guys can't seem to agree on anything. And, and I know there, there's an excuse for everything, and I've heard a number of excuses from people as to why they claim that they cannot attend church, but one of them that, that I tend to run into a lot, and it tends to be with people that consider themselves a believer in God, maybe not a, an exact Christian, although some of them I've ran into are followers of Jesus, but they don't go to church. And others are agnostic, they believe that God exists, but they're not quite sure if the Christian faith is, is that truth of God's existence. And whenever I get into these conversations, we tend to hone in on, well, there's so many of you. There's so many churches. Why can't you guys just agree on one thing? And, and it's a really sad thing to hear because what they're pointing out is they recognize that there's a certain level of disunity among God's people. And now, as far as the disunity that we might have among denominations, I, I tend to gloss over that because a lot of that has to do with, with how we worship, how we gather together. It really doesn't have anything to do with the service of Jesus Christ. And what I point out to people that have that excuse is I say, you know what? We all believe in the same Lord, Jesus Christ. We all believe that he is one with the Father and we all serve him and worship him. But the real heartbreaker is when I begin to hear stories of experiences of disunity within the local church or disunity among Christians between local churches. 
And so they serve the same Jesus Christ, but then this person will start to tell me stories. Well, I grew up in a small town, and what I found was that the churches didn't like each other. Or I grew up in a church, I went with my parents every Sunday, and that church just had people that didn't like one another. It's a really sad thing to hear. And Paul recognized, and, and by the way, if you think, oh my goodness, like this is a brand new problem that the church has experienced here in the 21st century or the 20th century, I got to tell you, they had that problem from the beginning. Go back to the book of Acts. You know, when we talk about, boy, I just want to be a New Testament church. Well, go back to the book of Acts. It ain't that perfect. One of the first arguments they had was that food was being distributed among some people and not others. Arguments occur. It's going to happen. And obviously, this was a problem for the church in Ephesus because Paul is writing to them on this topic. So for the first three chapters, Paul is, is giving a lot of... Uh, uh, commendation to the church in Ephesus. He's praising them. He's praising God. He's talking about how God wants to use them. Excuse me. And then he gets to chapter 4, and what it begins to turn into is sort of this nice way of saying, hey, I heard that you guys actually do have a problem in your church, and that problem just happens to be your unity as one body of Jesus Christ. And, and notice how he starts out with this. I, I love throughout the book of Ephesians, Paul says a number of times, I'm a prisoner. Uh, sort of to say, hey, I'm going to point something out to you, and before you begin to judge me, I'm in prison. This is worth saying. I'm, I'm writing to you in prison. I, and, and this wasn't prison like, you get three meals a day and you got a cell that you go to. This was like he's chained up against a wall. He possibly has somebody that's with him writing his letters for him, sending them out. He's probably sending them out in secret. And so he up front says, I implore you, remember, I'm a prisoner. Not just a prisoner. I'm a prisoner for something that I shouldn't be in prison for. I spread the gospel. I'm a believer in Jesus. That's why I'm here. And so he tells his congregation, I'm in prison writing to you, this is important. And he says, I want you to realize that you need to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. So for the first three chapters, he talks about the calling that we have in Jesus, the, the revelation that God gives us, the fact that we are children of the light, not children of darkness, the fact that God dwells in us. And then he says, since you have been called into this body, since you are no longer strangers out in the world, but you're in this body being led by God, you need to walk in a manner that is worthy of that calling. Another way of putting it, you need to start showing to the world what it means to be the body of Christ. And his number one point is you need to live unified lives in your church. You need to be a united body for the world to see so that when they see you, they see how valuable this calling is on your life. And so he says this here in verses 4 through 6, and then he sums it up again uh, in, in verse 13. He says, your goal as a Christian community is that you would be united under Jesus. Well, what does that unity look like? Well, he says it uh, in verses 4 through 6. He says, well, 
You were called into one calling, weren't you? By one God, one faith, one baptism, one hope, one Father above all, through all, in all, over all. Are you catching the theme? Are you hearing the number? One. So what unity looks like in our church is that we would be one. That when somebody looks at our local church or when somebody even looks at the church globally, they would see that we are one body, that we serve one God, that we have one hope, that we have one faith. And it's very important when we get to the part that says one God and one Father, this was the highest law in Jewish tradition. You go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, and, and they're summing up the book of the law. Okay, uh, that, that Israel was given on Mount Sinai. They're summing up what God has done for Israel, brought them out of the land of Egypt. God has given them the law. And, and in chapter 6, it is the most important law that, that the Jewish people hold and that the Lord your God, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. We don't serve many gods. We don't serve one God among other gods. We serve one God. So the highest law in Judaism that Paul is coming from is that we serve one God. And now what Paul is saying is because we serve one God, and that is the highest calling that we have, you now need to look as if though you are one. This is a high, high goal. Because God's oneness is we can't even fathom it because he's three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, but he's also one God. Are you confused yet? That's what we've settled. We we can't comprehend how God is one, and yet Paul says that is the level of unity that you need to demonstrate in your local church and in the church globally. That when people look at you, they would recognize that you are one just as God is one. Well, how do we achieve this? How do we get to this point of being able to show people that we have this kind of unity? Well, Paul says in in the first few verses, he says it's very simple. You need to love one another. You need to show love to one another in a way that when people see it, they recognize that you actually care. Now, the question is, what is love? What does that look like? Well, in this passage, what Paul does is he breaks love down into, uh, I, I think, four. I'm really bad at math. But he says, patience, humility, tolerance, and gentleness, I believe, are the four that he has here. You know, I got a Bible in front of me. Let me just read that for you. Humility, gentleness, patience, and showing tolerance for one another. And so what he does in this passage, another way of putting it is, you need to love one another, and this is what it looks like. In loving one another, you're going to be humble before one another. Now, this year, uh, uh, excuse me, uh, yesterday started, so this week is rifle season here in Wisconsin. And I love to go rifle hunting, but I'm really bad at it. I haven't shot a deer in 15 years. I get cold. I get angry out there. I give up too easy, okay? I'm really bad at it. And so it, it 
tends to get in the way of me when I tell people about my bad experiences and then they shoot right in with their wonderful experiences. It just, it gets to me. And I say, well, I didn't see anything. And they go, oh yeah, I saw a 10 point, but that's too small a rack for me. (laughs) Now, jokingly, that's not a very humble thing to respond to. You know, you're supposed to get down on somebody's level and communicate with them, but in a very real way, when we communicate with one another, we need to keep in mind that somebody else might not think as highly of themselves as you think. And so you need to learn how to lower yourself to somebody else's level, so to speak. Be able to get down with them in where they're at in life and be able to recognize that, you know what, it's not all about me. It's not all about my experiences, and I don't need to brag about myself to other people. By the way, if you did see a 10-point or you did shoot one, congratulations. I actually do want to hear about your hunting stories. But that's humility, being able to step back and view yourself a little less, not in a detrimental way, not in a way where you feel bad about yourself, but in a way that you can talk with somebody else and connect with somebody else in the level that they're living. What Paul also says is that it requires gentleness to love somebody else. And very simply, that means that you don't always have to be on the attack. You don't always have to be looking at faults in other people or in other situations. Being gentle is important because you learn to speak the truth in love, and we'll get to that passage another time, but in gentleness, you are able to respond to somebody without getting upset with them. This is important, especially when you're confronting somebody in their sin. When you recognize that somebody else is not living a a holy life and that sin is keeping them down, when you approach them about it, you need to approach them with gentleness. And here's what I found in my experience. People tend to have the conversation in their mind and get themselves worked up before they actually go and have the conversation. You know what that is? That's fear. You're afraid to have this conversation with somebody else, and so you begin to have, and and by the way, if you ever see me zoning out and my lips are moving, that's me having a conversation that I'm afraid to have, and I'm going through it in my mind. You just feel free to, you know, just snap me out of it. But that's what happens, I find, when, when we lack this gentleness is we're actually being really worked up about confronting somebody. And Paul reminds us, you can't just go in, ready, fire, aim. You need to go in with gentleness because the person that you're confronting who has sin is going to be hurt. That's why they're sinning. And so when you approach them about it, you need to be able to approach with this tenderness with calming words, with with assurance that everything is going to be all right. And it's amazing when you approach somebody in that way, what they're willing to confess and how they're willing to make amends. So you need gentleness. What we also need is patience. I was just talking with somebody out in the lobby, and we both said, yep, patience is a tough one, especially when we talk about having to wait and wait and wait for this or that to clear up. Patience is difficult, but love requires that you're patient. Love requires that you're willing to wait when you're talking to somebody, that you're willing uh, when, when you're confronting somebody about something, that you're willing, willing to let them go at the pace God is working on them at. 
Believe it or not, your timing is not the same as God's timing. And it is incredibly frustrating. Because as you sit there, you think, oh man, if this person just needs to get his act together, this person has to do this or that, they got to get it done. And God is sitting back and he's working on things in that person's life that you can't even see in a timing that is perfect for what they need. And so you need to step back and recognize, okay, I need to be patient. I need to recognize that God is working on them. And I need to sit back and wait for God to speak to me as to when I should speak to them. And then finally, here's this last word, tolerance. Now, this word, um, I, I, I don't know if anybody else is sick of it, but it's one of those words I'm sick of. I heard it my whole life in school growing up. And, and, and I want to differentiate for us what Paul means by the word tolerance and how we use it in the Christian church in Scripture, what God has intended, and how the world uses it. See, the world talks about tolerance and how important tolerance is, and what they mean is that you need to let people do whatever they want, and you need to approve of it. And so the world right now is saying we need to be tolerant of one another. And what they mean is we as Christians, when we look at sin, we need to forget that it's sin and we need to allow other people to live their lives. That's the tolerance the world wants is for us to say, you know what? You go ahead and sin. You go ahead and lead a life that lives or live a life that leads to death. You go in that route. But Paul says that, that's not the tolerance we're talking about. The tolerance we're talking about, another word, is actually to bear with one another, which is certainly not the life that the world wants us to live. So some of your translations might have that phrase, bear with one another's burdens. Does that sound like letting somebody live their life? No, it doesn't. It means that when somebody else is struggling with something, you would be there to help them with that. When somebody is struggling with something, you would offer your services and be there to help them in whatever battle they're going through. One example I can think of this in my own life, a few years ago, Emily and I, when we were in seminary, we, we just had an awful time. By the way, <laughs> nothing, the phrase we use in our house is, nothing will ever be as hard as seminary was. But we were training for ministry, we knew God called us there, and we got to a point where we, we just financially could not go on. And we had a certain amount that we absolutely needed. If we couldn't pay that amount, we'd have to pack our bags and move back home. And we were just praying night and day for this certain amount. And I got to a point, I couldn't bear that anymore. I, I just, I, it was hard to pray that. Well, at the same time, I had a friend who was going to the mission field, and he had just gotten started, him and his wife, and they were going around to churches to raise money, and what he had found out was that they were incredibly short a certain amount to be able to go, and he had a deadline that he had to make a certain amount of money before they would allow him to then proceed with the process. So he had a certain amount, and we were talking one day, and what he told me was he said, I am just sick of praying for this. I just, I can't do this anymore. He said, I need this much more percent of my budget. I don't know how I'm going to meet it. I'm praying and I'm praying and I don't know what to do. I said, hey, funny story. I'm sick of praying for myself too. And what we decided was, you know, you go ahead and pray for my burden because I can't do it anymore. I'll go ahead and pray for your burden because I'd rather do that than pray for my own. And so we agreed for one week, 
whenever I felt scared or worried about the burden that I had financially in my own family, I wouldn't pray for it. I'd pray for him and his family, and he did the same. That weekend, he went to a church, and that church promised to help meet his budget by the deadline. That same weekend, my wife and I got a scholarship from one of our local churches to continue in the process there at seminary. That is what it means to bear with one another's burdens. We're going to get to a point, I I don't know if I can continue to carry this in my life. Can you help me with it? Can you take over this burden that I've been carrying? Can you help me carry it in prayer? Can you help me carry it in service? Being willing to listen and, and, and offer help and service wherever we need it. That's what Paul is talking about when he says the unity we have is supposed to be in love. Now again, this is a high, high calling. This calling of unity because it looks like God's oneness. And so now we have the question, well, how are we going to get this done? Have you met me? I don't know how we are going to accomplish this as a church. And Paul says, well, perfect. The answer is Jesus Christ. He's the one that's going to make all this happen. And so in verses 7 through 12, what he talks about is the, is the grace that, that Jesus gives to his people so that they can accomplish this task. And what he does in verse 7 is he says that enough grace has been given to you based on the gift of Jesus. And he goes on to quote Psalm chapter 68. So if you have time today, look up Psalm chapter 68. When Paul gives that little quotation in Ephesians, he's not able to quote all of Psalm 68, but he's telling his church, remember Psalm 68. The writer talks about this. And Psalm 68 is about how God rescued his people out of Egypt. And the psalm he's referencing is about how God's grace was bestowed on Israel by taking them out of Egypt, by bringing them to Mount Sinai, by giving them the law, by letting him know that, that he or uh, they are his people. And so when Paul quotes this, what he's saying is, if God did that for Israel, he's going to do that for you. And he says, enough grace has been given to you to love one another in patience, humility, gentleness, and tolerance. Enough grace has been given to you according to what Jesus has that you can get through this. Now, what is grace? Grace is very simply when you get something that you don't deserve. All right, my son Jude had a birthday last week, and he turned five years old. And, and traditionally, when you, when you have a birthday, you get all these gifts. And, and all my family being back in Michigan, they have bestowed many gifts on my son. Too many gifts, if you ask me. And he had Lego sets come in. He had cards come in. And he had all of these gifts arrive. And I'm sorry to say, but he didn't deserve that. He didn't work for these Lego sets. He didn't work for any of this. This was given to him because my parents and Emily's parents and our siblings love him. And they wanted to celebrate that he turned five years old. So they sent him all of these gifts. The number of gifts that he got without earning were not based on what he was able to do. It was based on the level that my parents, Emily's parents, and our siblings were able to give to him. Are you following? 
What he got had nothing to do with his ability to get it. It had everything to do with the ability of those giving him those gifts. And so in these verses, what Paul is saying is, if you're having a hard time loving one another, if you're having a hard time being tolerant and gentle and patient and humble with one another, just know that the grace that God has given you, the ability to get through this in your church is not based on your work, it's based on the one who gives you that grace. And that one is Jesus, and he descended to the earth as a child was crucified, dead, and buried, and then raised from the dead, and then ascended back into heaven, he's got it all. He has no limits on his gift-giving, which means you don't have to try to earn this ability to love one another. It's been given just by being a follower of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of grace God has given us to love one another. And then Paul goes further and said, this love, this calling that you have also shows up in how you serve one another in your body. And he talks about how for some are called to be apostles and evangelists and prophets and pastors and teachers. There's a certain level of of authority that these people have and God has called them to that position. And the reason for that is to build up the local church to build up the body of Christ so that we can serve one another. And what's the end goal in all of this? That we would be unified. That we would be one body for the world to see. So really what all of this comes down to is what is our attitude towards one another? Not not. What have we done for one another, per se? Not not necessarily have we done enough work to show people that we love one another. It actually comes down to an issue of disposition. In our heart, do we truly love one another? And if that's so, God has given us the grace to do whatever it is we need to do to be unified as a body. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, a German theologian, he's probably best known for, uh, for doing ministry in Nazi-occupied Germany. Uh, in fact, one of the things he's most known for is he uh, actually led an assassination attempt on Hitler. Uh, and, and he was also a seminary teacher, a pastor, and he wrote a book called Life Together. And one of the points he makes in that book is that there are two kinds of love that we have in the world. The one love that we're very familiar with is human love. And human love looks at others and wants to take. Human love looks at somebody else and says, I, they have something that I want. I want to take it from them for my own benefit. He says, that's human love. That's fleeting. That doesn't last. That's, that's not even love at all. But then he says, there is spiritual love which we've been given as a church. And that love looks at one another and says, I love Jesus so much, I want to serve this person. And he says the spiritual love that we have is when Christ Jesus bonds us together and we serve one another and we have a disposition of love toward one another that we're actually serving Jesus when we're serving one another. That's the unity that we're called into as a church. That's the unity 
that if this world, if Eau Claire, if the Chippewa Valley were to peer into our local church, that is the kind of unity that they ought to see to the point that if they have any excuses as to why they don't attend, and that excuse amounts to, well, you guys can't seem to agree on anything, you can say, oh, but you haven't been to my church. And I understand there's churches that struggle, and I, and I, and I want to help them and I pray for them, but you haven't been to Eau Claire Wesleyan yet, have you? You need to come. You need to see what kind of unity we have, and then you'll believe that there is a God. Let's pray. God, thank you again for this day and this time of worship. Uh, We pray, Lord, we continue to pray for for those that are sick, for those that are having to stay out uh, due to sickness or contact. Uh, Lord, we pray that you be with them. Be with them in their homes. Uh, Be with them wherever they're at. And Lord, we continue to pray uh, that you would guide us and lead us, that as we leave this place, as we go out into the community, that people would see the love that we have for one another and the unity that we have in your body, and they would see that as a testimony to believing in you. Give us the strength, Lord. Give us the grace according to your riches. We pray all this in your name. Amen.